Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, Here to Help. First, our scripture reading, followed by an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate you sharing God's word with us today. And one of Bette Midler's greatest hits was a song called From a Distance. Uh, it was first recorded by uh, one of Austin's own, the late Nancy Griffith. But Bette Midler made it famous. And in this song, there is the chorus, God is watching us, God is watching us, God is watching us from a distance. It's a pretty song, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Of course, God is above us, watching us, observing us, evaluating how we're running this race of life. But God is also beside us as our model, showing us how to run well. And God is within us, empowering us to run well. The Father above us, the Son beside us, the Spirit within us. That is how Christians experience God. The Father above us, the Son beside us, and the Spirit within us. Now Jesus introduces this truth to us in this passage that Larry read to us in John chapter 14. Uh, we've, been, we've been going through a study through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, and you know that when we got to John chapter 13, uh, 
I said that everything that is said and done in the next five chapters, John chapter 13 through 17, all take place within a few hours before Jesus is betrayed and arrested and eventually nailed to a cross. And so Jesus has drawn aside his closest followers, his own apostles, into an upper room, and there he wants to share with them some important truths before his earthly ministry is done. And so one of the things he wants them to know is that though he is going away, he will not leave them as orphans, as he puts it in this passage. We are told in this passage that he is uh, going to go away, but he is going to ask the Father who will send the Holy Spirit to be with us and within us. As we run the race of life, we need to know that indeed God is watching us from above, but he is beside us and within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, we can ask three questions today of this passage. Who and what and how? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? And how can we receive the benefits of the Holy Spirit? So take a look at your sermon notes and let's ask, first of all, who is the Holy Spirit? Now, some of you might say, well, your grammar's wrong there, Pastor. Isn't the, the question supposed to be what? What is the Holy Spirit? Because there are too many people today, even Bible readers, who believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, uh, is a, kind of like an electric current, an influence from God. But did you notice that in every place in this passage that Larry read to us, whenever Jesus uses the pronouns to speak about the Holy Spirit, he uses the, the pronouns he and his and him. Take a look, for example, just in one verse, verse 17. By the way, when I woke up this morning, I realized that I had sent the wrong chapter uh, uh, number in. And so in your bulletin, in your outline, everywhere where it says John chapter 15, just write it John chapter 14, because that's what it's supposed to be. John chapter 14, uh, verse 17. And by the way, those of you who are in common ground groups, when you get to your common ground guide in another hour, everywhere it says John chapter 15, it's supposed to be John chapter 14. So please make a note of that and remind your common ground leader about that as well. But in John chapter, not 15, but 14, Verse 17, take a look at this and count the number of times Jesus uses the personal pronoun, not the impersonal pronoun, when referring to the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him, that's one, because it neither sees him, that's two, nor knows him, that's three, but you know him, that's four, because he, that's five, lives with you. Jesus didn't use the impersonal pronoun it, but the personal pronouns he or him when referring to the Holy Spirit because Jesus understood the Holy Spirit not to be an electric current, not to be an impersonal force, but to be a person. But now here's the mystery because Jesus taught in John chapter 14 verse 17 that the Spirit lives within you and will be in you. But he also says in John chapter 14, verse 20, I am in you. And in verse 23, he said, both he and the Father will make our home uh, inside of us. Now, what should we conclude from that? We should conclude that the Spirit is not some influence or force, but he is the way we experience God. He is not the Father. He is not the Son. But he nevertheless is everything we mean when we talk about God. The Holy Spirit is how we experience God in the present tense. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord is the Spirit. Now what we discover 
in these verses is the triune nature of God. You remember, we from time to time sing that hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy God in three persons, Blessed Trinity. Now Muslims uh, will try to say and try to teach that uh, Christians actually worship three gods, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So we're worshiping three gods. We're polytheists, they say, but no, we are monotheists. We believe in one God. We follow Jesus, who in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, repeated the Jewish declaration, the Jewish Shema, Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God is one. And so we believe in the oneness of God. But when we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about the nature of that oneness. Bible scholar Don Carson said he was in a formal debate with a Muslim scholar who said, you know, it's very simple. Like you Christians believe one plus one plus one equals three. You Christians worship three gods. And Don Carson said, my undergraduate degree was in mathematics. Of course I know that one plus one plus one equals three. But infinity plus infinity plus infinity equals infinity. The Christians believe in the one God. But in today's passage, we are learning something about the nature of that oneness. The one God is in an eternal relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it in one of his writings. In Christianity, God is a dynamic, pulsating activity a life, almost a kind of drama, almost as if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And we can see what Lewis very carefully calls a dance in this passage alone in John chapter 14. In this passage, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit giving and receiving, surrendering and accepting. There's this holy dance that's going on. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here on this study of, of, the, of the Trinity, but I do want you to understand that the study of the Trinity is not just something that seminary students engage in, along with the question of how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. It's not some irrelevant topic that you finally get to when you're going through seminary or you're learning how to be a preacher. The, the, the understanding of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has powerful implications for how we understand life, how we understand the meaning of life, how we understand nature itself. And here's one implication. Because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the heart of reality, at the heart of the universe, is love. We would like to think that God is loving. We sing that, we say that because we hope that it is true, but the Bible tells us it's so much more than that. Not only is God loving, He is love. It's not just something He does, it's something He is. And that was a characteristic of God long before he had anything that he created to love. Before he created angels, before he created animals, before he created human beings to love, God was already love. Why? Because he was in an eternal relation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So at the heart of the universe itself is love, relationship. And when you are called into a relationship with God, you are called into that holy dance of relationship and love, which is at the heart of the universe. Now, I have more to say on this subject in my book, The Anchor Course, and so we won't keep talking about it today. If you, uh, I will give you one chapter from The Anchor Course if you're interested. It's about the Trinity. And so uh, somewhere on the connection card today, if you just write, 
you know, send me the free chapter or send me the Trinity chapter or something like that, I'll send you uh, that. Make sure your name and email address is on the connection card if you do. But for this morning, let's not go any deeper into this subject of the Trinity. Here's the point of today's passage. When Jesus promised to send us the Spirit, what a, what a great assurance to know that he was not promising to ask the Father to send us some electric current. He was not promising to ask the Father to send us some influence or force. He was asking the Father, he was promising that he would ask the Father to send us the person of God himself so that we experience God within us in the present tense as we experience the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Lord is the Spirit. He is how we experience God. Here's a second question. What does the Holy Spirit do? Now that's a big subject. We could cover uh, a lot of weeks just looking at what the Holy Spirit does, but if we just stick to this passage today, and again, it's not John 15, it's John 14, but if we just stick to this passage today, we'll have enough to chew on. And so in today's passage, Jesus uses a unique title for the Holy Spirit. Take a look at verse 26 of John chapter 14. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, now we'll look at the rest of that verse in depth later on, but, but take a look at what Jesus calls him here. Jesus calls him the advocate. Other English translations use a variety of words at this point. And so depending on your translation, you see him called the counselor or the comforter or the helper or the true friend. And anytime we get into uh, looking at our various English translations and we see a variety of English words being used to try to get at a particular Greek word, it's telling us that behind our English translations, there's a particularly rich Greek word, a word that is rich in meaning. And the Greek word here uh, that these various English translations are trying to get at is the word parakletos. The word parakletos, like so many Greek words, is a combination of two Greek words, para and kletos. Para means beside, and kletos means to call, or it's based on, an, on a word that means to call. And so a parakletos is somebody who stands beside calling. Now, in our culture, there are two types of people who stand beside us calling, a defense attorney and a coach. And that's really what is being described here is the Holy Spirit is standing beside us calling. So he is our defense attorney and he is our coach. First of all, he is our defense attorney. A trial attorney stands beside you in a court of law and he speaks on your behalf. He defends you against the prosecution's case. Here's the interesting thing though. The prosecutor that the Holy Spirit so often has to defend you, uh, defend you from is so often yourself. The most severe prosecution you could ever face is the prosecution that you bring against yourself so often. And so the Holy Spirit stands beside us to defend us, but the Holy Spirit stands beside us to defend us sometimes from us. Uh, that's one thing we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. Look at your notes. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And motivational speakers tell us that um, in order to get through life, in order to be winners in life, what we need to do is have certain affirmations that we tell ourselves. And so we're supposed to wake up every morning and look at our reflection and the mirror over the bathroom sink and, and, and we're to say, I am enough and I am a winner and I am strong and so on. And, and you know, that's, that's useful. Maybe you could do that. 
But you know, according to this passage, we have something far better as Christians. We have the Holy Spirit standing beside us, giving us affirmations. And the Holy Spirit is reminding us when we condemn ourselves. The Holy Spirit is reminding us when we uh, accuse ourselves. The Holy Spirit says, God loves you. Jesus paid a great price to buy you for himself. God will never leave you or forsake you. The toughest prosecution we will sometimes ever face is the prosecution we bring on our own selves. But the Holy Spirit stands beside us calling out the truth that we need to know about ourselves. There's another reality when it comes to who stands beside us calling out today. Not only a defense attorney, but also a coach. A coach is somebody who stands beside you and says, you can be better. And says, here's how you can be better. And that's what the Holy Spirit does as well. There's this interesting verse in James chapter 4. It's difficult to translate. But in James chapter 4 verse 5 in the Christian Standard Bible, we read it this way. Do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? And what seems to be happening there, what seems to be being said in that verse is this that the spirit that God made to dwell in us is jealous for us. In the context in James chapter 4, we see that we're, we're warned against drifting off into the world's attractions, drifting off to that which is sinful, that which is opposed to God. And it seems that what this verse is saying is that when the Holy Spirit sees us drifting away from God into the world's sinful attractions, the Holy Spirit is jealous for us. The Holy Spirit longs for us and he speaks to us and he reprimands us and he calls out to us until we're back on the center of the path once again. He doesn't want to share us with the world and so he envies for us, it seems this passage is saying. So the Holy Spirit is a defense attorney. He's defending you. And sometimes what the Holy Spirit needs to do the most is defend you against you. And the Holy Spirit is our coach who says, you can be better. Now, how does the Holy Spirit do his work of being our defense attorney and being our coach? Well, let's go back to verse 26 again. Again, this is in, James, in John chapter 14, not 15. But in verse 26, we read, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, it doesn't seem to mean at that point that the Holy Spirit is doing two things. He's teaching us, and then, oh, by the way, he's doing something else. He's reminding us. It seems that what this passage is telling us, what Jesus is telling us, is the Holy Spirit will teach us by reminding us. That this is the way that he will teach us, by reminding us of that which is already recorded, that which is already on record. Now, if that's the case, where is it already recorded? Where is it already on record? When you want to know who God is, when you want to know God's promises, when you want to know what God expects of us and wants of us, where do you find that? You find it in the Bible. You find it in his word. He has taught us in his word. And so the Holy Spirit then reminds us of that which is already deposited to us. The Holy Spirit reminds us of that which is already recorded for us. He takes the Bible and reminds us of it, helps us apply it to the, to the rough and tumble of daily life, helps us understand how to apply it in the situations we face in the 21st century. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And in that way, he becomes our defense attorney and our coach. We need to thank God for this forever companion who coaches us and defends us by applying the eternal word of God to our lives. 
So we're asking three questions today, who and what and how. And uh, we've asked who is the Holy Spirit, and we found out that he is everything it means to be God. He is how we experience God in the present tense. And, and, and then we ask uh, what, you know, and, and, and now we need to ask how. How can we receive the benefits of his work? Here's the answer. We must develop faithfulness while depending on Christ's faithfulness. That's the gospel. And if you ignore either half of that sentence, you don't understand the gospel. The summary of the entirety of the New Testament is in that one sentence. Develop greater faithfulness as you rest in Christ's faithfulness. Now we see this in the closing verses of this passage. Now, first of all, we must develop greater faithfulness. Look at John chapter 14, uh, uh, verse 15. Again, not chapter 15, chapter 14, but verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Does he say it again? Yes, he does. Verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Does he say it again? Yes, one more time. Verse 23. Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. You think this was kind of important to Jesus at this point, that he would say it not once, not twice, but three times just in this one passage? Jesus is trying to let us know that he is not our roommate. Jesus is not your boyfriend. Jesus is our Lord. And the way that we show that we are loyal to him, the way that we show that we love him and that we trust him is by doing what he tells us to do. And if you read this passage carefully, you'll notice that Jesus is telling us as we develop greater faithfulness to him, we will experience more and more of the Holy Spirit. And so it's not a certain prayer you pray, it's not a certain number of songs you sing, it's not a certain retreat that you go to that gives you an opportunity to experience more and more of the Holy Spirit. It's as we develop greater faithfulness, greater obedience to what he expects of us, that we experience more and more of the Spirit. Now, this isn't some legalistic type of thing. This isn't God saying, okay, you do something for me, I'll do something for you. You follow these commands that I've set up, and then in turn, I'll do you a favor. I'll give you more experience of the Holy Spirit. That's not the way to understand what I'm saying here. It just makes sense, though, that the more you decide to trust that he knows best, the more encourage you will feel in your heart that he is there. Doesn't that make sense? The more you step out in faith, the firmer you'll actually feel his arms around you holding you up. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us here. It's not that the Spirit finally decides he'll come into us only after he watches us perfectly living out everything in God's word. That would be impossible, wouldn't it? But we start recognizing more and more and more of his presence in our lives. The more we trust him, the more we obey him, the more we step out and do what he tells us to do. So if we want to experience the Holy Spirit, we must develop greater faithfulness, but we must do so while resting in Christ's faithfulness. That's what we find in the closing verses of John chapter 14. The way today's passage ends is so powerful. And if you read it right, and if you understand what's going on, every time you read these closing verses, it should give you chills. Take a look again. 
John chapter 14, verses 30 and 31. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Did it give you chills? Let me see if I can help it give you chills. Now, all throughout this passage, Jesus says, If you love me, obey me. If you love me, obey me. If you love me, obey me. And right here at the end, what does he say? I love the Father perfectly. And I demonstrate it perfectly by willing to go through everything to accomplish the Father's mission, even dying on a cross. And, 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 and so what we see in this passage is that he is stepping toward the cross, not away from it. He says to his men, the prince of this world is coming. Come now, let us leave. Now remember what he, where he was when he said this. I said that starting in John chapter 13, he's in the upper room. He's with his apostles. He celebrates Passover with them. He establishes the Lord's Supper with them. And it's at that point, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 13, that the prince of this world, Satan, enters into the willing heart of Judas. And Jesus says, what you're planning to do, go and do quickly. And Judas leaves the room. Now, where does he go? We know where he goes. He goes to betray Jesus. He goes to the religious authorities and he accepts money from them so that he might bring the authorities to a quiet place away from the crowds where Jesus can be arrested. But that quiet place away from the crowds where Jesus can be arrested is not the upper room. It's, in the Mount, it's on the Mount of Olives. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas knew that that's where Jesus often went to pray, where Jesus often went to give close instruction to his closest followers. And so Judas was on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when Jesus says, come now, let us leave, he is not saying the prince of this world with the earthly uh, uh, religious leaders are coming to this upper room. The prince of this world is coming to the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to meet him there. Come now, let us leave. Jesus isn't fleeing and running away. He's running to the cross with his great desire to love his Father and demonstrate that love by fulfilling perfectly the mission of the Father, even to the point of the cross. What Jesus was saying and, the, and, and, and how Jesus says it in this chapter should give you chills. Jesus wasn't running away from the cross. He was running to it. He was coming to fulfill the, the Father's plan. And, and the gospel, the good news, is that on the cross, he took your unfaithfulness, he took my unfaithfulness, while giving us his record of perfect faithfulness. That's what we see over and over again in the Bible, that there's this cosmic trade that took place on the cross where Jesus took his record of perfectly loving God, being perfectly faithful to the Heavenly Father, and he ascribed that to our account so that we are judged by his perfect record and what happened to our imperfect record. We try to be faithful, but we're not always faithful. What happened to that record? It went onto the shoulders of Jesus, who died for it on the cross. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the transfer that took place there? That's the story of the gospel. So we must develop greater faithfulness. 
even as we are resting in the faithfulness of Christ. And if we will do that, this passage says, we will enter into a greater and greater realization of how the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, holding us up, propping us up, challenging us, seeing us through all the things that we go through. And I hope now that you see how wonderful it is to know the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus left this earth, that was one thing he wanted to make sure we knew. That he was leaving, but he wouldn't leave us as orphans. He would send us the Holy Spirit of God. And that means that whatever you experience, whatever you go through, there's no place that you're without God. In the hospital waiting room, he is with us. At that kitchen table where you're trying to figure out how to pay the month's bills, he is with us. On that deserted road, when the car breaks down in the middle of the night, he is with us. And this is a great truth that we need to hold on to. God isn't watching us up from a distance, run the race of life on our own. He has entered into our experience. The Father above us, the Son beside us, the Spirit within us so that we might experience all that we need to experience of God. Maybe you recall the story of Derek Redman. He competed in the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona. At the semifinal for the 400 meters uh, uh, sprint, uh, as, it, as, the, as the gun went off and he took off, he broke ahead of the rest of the crowd. It looked like he was gonna easily win that heat, but he did not do so. At 175 meters away from the finish line, he felt a pop in his hamstring and he pulled up short and for a while he tried to hop on one leg to get to the finish line but finally he collapsed weeping on the track and it was at that moment that something absolutely remarkable took place uh, Derek's father Jim had come to Barcelona to watch his son run he was up in the grandstands watching his son and when his son collapsed on the track Jim ran down the steps of the grandstand broke through the gate pushed between two security guards to get out onto the track. And he got onto the track, he wrapped his arms around his son, picked him up and said, I'm here, son, we'll finish this race together. And while the crowd was crying and cheering, father and son crossed the finish line together. This is the picture of our experience with God. He's not just up in the grandstands watching us from a distance run our race alone. He is on the track with us. He is within us, encouraging us, nudging us, pushing us along. Jesus said at one time in Luke chapter 11 that the Father would give the Spirit to anyone who asked him. So what are you waiting for? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O oh, Father above us, O oh, Son beside us, O oh, Spirit within us, help us trust you that we might be saved. And help us as saved people trust you that we might grow. Amen. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a sermon titled, How to Thrive on the Vine. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest to Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.